Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. Let's try that again. Good morning. This will just get in my way. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. As Brian said, I'm the founder and executive director of the Aspire Movement, and what we are is a mentoring program similar to Big Brothers Big Sisters, except with three ways we're very distinct, very different. Um, one of those is that all of our mentors are godly men and women who have trusted in Jesus Christ personally for salvation. We feel like in order to impact young people, point them to Jesus Christ, it actually has to come from someone who knows about that transformation in their life. The second reason we're different is we're long-term. So whereas some mentor-student relationships are eight months, a year, our mentors are committing themselves to two years with the hopes that they will start with this child in fourth or fifth grade, nine and ten-year-olds, and walk alongside of them until they graduate high school. So it's a long-term commitment. We started in 2011 with 13 mentors. Today, we have 138 mentors in 15 schools in Birmingham, over 40 churches represented through our mentoring program. The last way that we're different is the most significant, and you'll hear this theme come up again, is it is about mutual transformation. In other words, it's not just about a mentor who has wisdom, experience, knowledge, teaching this young student. No, it is about two people walking alongside of each other in relationship, encouraging one another, helping one another grow in their faith. You may say, well, what does a nine-year-old have to offer somebody who's been walking with the Lord 40 years? Eh, quite a bit, actually. And so one of the reasons I founded this program was based on my own personal story. It was based on the places that God had put me in. It was based on the consequences of my sin, my own actions, and the, um, the situations that I went through in life. And so I've, in my time being a Christian, been about 15 years now, uh, I've walked with a lot of people in my journey, and I've walked with a lot of young men that were getting out of prison. And one thing, if you work with guys getting out of prison that you'll find is that it's hard to get a job when you have felonies on your record. And so one young man in particular, we're trying to find him a job, and we're looking all over the place, and, and finally he gets a call back from somebody, and it's the Birmingham Zoo. And so he's thinking, man, you know, um, I've got an interview. I'm going to go to the zoo and see what this is all about. And so he goes to the zoo, and he meets with the guy who's hiring. And the gentleman tells him about the job description of what he'll be doing. And he basically says, listen, you know, this year we've unfortunately had a shortage of monkeys. Um, and so what we're going to ask you to do is put on this suit over here in the corner and just go out, and basically you're going to be a monkey five days a week. Now, don't worry. Um, people are far away enough that they won't know. They won't know who you are. They won't know that you're not the real thing. And he's thinking to himself, this is a pretty degrading job, you know. And some of you, in, you're all in college right now. You're thinking about where you're going to work, what your occupation is going to be. And you think about, man, I don't know. I mean, it sounds like I'm going to be a mascot. I don't, I don't really want to do that. And yet he realizes, man, my opportunities are limited. You know, I've got rent. I've got car note. I mean, I've got to eat, I've got bills to pay, so I'm going to take this job. And so he takes the job, and the first day or two, it's just like, man, it's humiliating. And then all of a sudden, like by day three, day four, he starts enjoying it. 
Like, he starts really living it. He starts, like, watching National Geographic and discovering, like, man, what are mannerisms that monkeys do? And, you know, how do they walk around? And, and, and so, like, he's getting into this role. It's, like, really cool. And um, one day he's into it so much that he's swinging on this tree and um, swings himself over into the lion's den. And it's at that moment, as he looks over and sees a lion, that he realizes, oh, Number one, I'm not a monkey, and number two, I'm in trouble. I'm in big trouble. And so the lion starts approaching him, and he freaks out, and he starts screaming, help, please help me. And, of course, the people are, you know, far back, so they can't hear him, so he tries to scream even louder, and he's like, help, please. And this lion starts rushing him. And by the time he can scream out again, the lion is right up on him. And the lion looks at him and says, fool, if you don't shut up, we're going to both lose our jobs. <laughs> now, why do I tell you that story other than to make you laugh and wake you up, hopefully? Because people aren't always what they seem. And things that you see in life aren't always what they seem. I would classify my life in three categories, hypocrisy, hedonism, and hope. And hypocrisy is what I experienced the first 12 years of my life. And it came from the biggest image of Christianity in my life, and that was my father. See, my father was a believer in Jesus. He was a man who woke up early to pray, who read his Bible, who made his children memorize scripture. He attended church on a regular basis. He tried to follow God's call and, and, and had us move, moving and relocating all the time. And during this season of life, he was also the same man who verbally, physically, and emotionally abused my mom. He was the same man who had an illicit relationship with my oldest sister, which was his stepdaughter, whom he adopted. And he was the same man that when my mom finally divorced him, he abandoned his entire family and went to, of all places, you guessed it, seminary. And so for me, my first 12 years of life, my experience with people who said that they followed Jesus was this group of people who were hypocrites. They based this religion off of things that you should do, things that you shouldn't do, and yet I watch them do all of these things all the time. And I'm thinking to myself, if there is a God in heaven, it sure is not the one that they're following. And I just remember church being so legalistic and rule-driven. I just remember the people being um, just gossiping all the time. I remember the people being greedy. I remember the people being racist. Um, I, just, I just remember viewing this people and then having read the scriptures about the love of God and, 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 and the love of Jesus and grace and mercy and kindness. And I'm like, I'm not seeing any of that. What I see is hypocrisy. And so like any young person, and like some of you today, I went in search of my identity. Now, I grew up in inner city D.C. So where I grew up, there was a couple of things that you did for popularity and notoriety. And they were play basketball or sell drugs. And I'm six foot six, and I just happened to excel at both of them. And so by age 13, 14, I was using and abusing drugs, alcohol, and I was also becoming a better basketball player every year. So much so that my senior year in high school, I was an All-American and recruited all over the country and ended up signing a scholarship at George Mason University, which is right outside of D.C. I went there because I could continue my life. <laughs> I didn't have to move away from 
um, the money-making mechanism that I was a part of, and yet I could still play basketball and, and go to a lot of cool places. And so after my freshman year, my worlds kind of collided because I was able to compartmentalize and separate my life because there was Jason Williams, the All-American basketball player who can do no wrong, and on the other side, it was the Jason Williams who smoked weed every day and sold illegal drugs. And after my freshman year of college, after my coaches begged me to go to summer school, which I told them, no thanks, I ended up getting arrested and charged with three felonies for drug trafficking and kicked out of school. Went on to get arrested five more times that year for various things. And what was interesting about that, and I like to point this out because especially in light of the climate that we're in today with race and justice and all those things, is that even after being arrested, Six times in one year, I watched my best friend who got arrested one time with about a third of the drugs that I had on me get sentenced to 10 years in prison. Well, guess what I walked off with after a couple months in jail? Probation. Well, my friend was African American. <laughs> it was the first time I've visibly experienced and saw the fact that because I was born a white guy, I had privilege in this life. They had nothing to do with our future outcomes. I mean, this young man had came from a two-parent home and actually was much smarter than I was and had better grades than I, than I had. And yet, I looked at the outcomes. And so God in his infinite grace um, allowed me a second chance, and I ended up at a junior college in Florida. And from that junior college in Florida, I ended up signing with Georgia State in Atlanta because that was Jason Williams' plan, move to Atlanta. I mean, when you grow up in D.C., if you've ever been to D.C., and it's changed a lot, but it's very diverse. You know, it's funny, I moved into Birmingham, and it's like black or white. And I came from a city where in high school there were 80 different ethnic groups of people. So when I think diversity, I don't think black and white. I think people from all over the world, right? And I'm, and I'm all ready to go to Georgia State and Atlanta except one problem. My grades were terrible. So they wanted me to go to summer school to get my GPA up so I would be eligible to play basketball. How many of you thought, think that I really went to college that summer? <laughs> of course not. Bad choices. Right back in the same position I was. Got a call halfway through that summer. Georgia State telling me, you have no scholarship here. It's been revoked. And I remember the call, even though I was, you know, drunk and high out of my mind. It was basically like kick rocks, like I'm living the dream. What are you talking about? And August 24th, 1998, my life changed because somebody kicked in my door, fired off a couple shots, and almost killed my son. See, by this time, I was 19 years old, and I had brought two kids into the world, no marriage. And when I saw my son there weeping, I saw that he was basically receiving all the consequences for the life that I was living. And it broke me. I mean, I had been in near-death situations before, but to watch my two-year-old son in that position, something started to stir in me. I was like, I have to provide a better life for him. And I called my coach in Florida, and I was crying, and I was like, man, get me a scholarship. I'll go anywhere. If you can just find me a place to play. Now, keep in mind, guys, this is August 24th. When does school usually start? I mean, how many schools are going to have a scholarship available then? And here's how beautiful God's plan was for my life. My coach at Florida started at New Orleans, and his assistant for 15 years was now the head coach at Birmingham Southern. 
And he made one phone call to Dwayne Rebel at Birmingham Southern and said, I got this kid. He's been in some trouble, but he's a good kid. He's a great player. Take him on a scholarship, sight unseen. And two days later, after that phone call, August 28, 1998, I was on a plane to Birmingham with two bags of clothes. That stretch of my life, I consider myself a functional hedonist. And I didn't know at 14, 15, 16 what hedonism was. I mean, I couldn't even spell it. But it's a philosophy of life that a lot of people follow, and that is this, that you need to pleasure yourself, that life is about you, and you need to exalt and give yourself the pleasures that the world has to offer, and that will overcome any struggle, any suffering, any pain that you have in life. And that was, that was my worldview. That's how I lived my life. So anything that made me feel good, great, let's go do it. The problem was everything that made me feel good carried enormous consequences. And so I arrived on campus at Birmingham Southern, and within two weeks, I met my wife. Been married 13 years now. We've known each other 18 years. And I was introduced to hope. I was introduced to hope for the first time, and I'd never forget our first couple interactions, and she told me she was a Christian. And, um, you know, I told her I knew about God. I didn't want to, you know, blow my cover or anything or just quickly alienate me. And yet as we talked more and more, I realized she was so much different than everybody I had ever interacted with. She was humble. She was meek. She was gentle. She, she, she wasn't legalistic. She, she, she was repentant. And I'll never forget because about a year into our relationship, her grandmother died. And her grandmother was, the, was like the matriarch of the family. I mean, everybody looked up to grandma and when she passed away, I watched her grieve with hope, and I didn't have a category for that. She grieved, she wept, she mourned, yet there was this unbelievable assurance, like, I'm going to see her again. And by the way, Jason, guess what? If I could bring her back, I wouldn't, because she's ultimately where I'm going to be. And for me, I didn't have a category for that, because I had been to funerals. I mean, I buried one of my best friends. And I had been to many funerals where moms would just wail and weep and people were crying and falling out. And, and there was no hope because they knew how we lived our lives. They were godless lives. And so she introduced me to hope and I started going to church. And I joked with people. They were like, man, did you go to church to learn about God? Nope. I wanted to check out the competition. I mean, because she's going there two, three days a week. I'm like, man, who's up in there? Because one thing, if you, if you know anything about being an athlete and being a player, man, we're insecure. Right? We don't trust people because we know ourselves. We don't trust ourselves, ultimately. And so, in 2001, in Mount Canaan Full Gospel Church, which is an all-black congregation over in West End, the poorest part of our city, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And I was at that church for seven years. And I grew in my faith tremendously. From there, I developed this unbelievable burden and passion to not be like what I saw, which is a hypocrite. I had this unbelievable burning desire and passion to reach out to people in life that society said is worth nothing and are cast off. Guys in prison, homeless population, fatherless kids. Any group that has been marginalized in society, I felt like God had given me a story and a platform to actually advocate 
for those folks. And amazingly enough, I went from Mount Canaan Full Gospel Church to on staff at Briarwood Presbyterian Church. I mean, you can't make this stuff up and you can't get more diverse as far as the places. It's like, it's like going from North Birmingham in Collegeville to Mountain Brook. That's how far the gap was. And some of you know what I'm talking about because you, you've grown up in Birmingham. But I want to share this with you because faith is so interconnected to how we live our lives. See, I was taught that Christianity and religion is a system of rules and things you do or you don't do or your church attendance or uh, where you sit in the pews. And what I've come to realize in 15 years that it is a growing, developing relationship with Jesus Christ. I'll never forget, I shared my testimony at a leadership summit in Montgomery, and this guy came up to me, and he was like, man, your testimony, like how God transformed you, that's amazing. Like, man, all the stuff that you did in life, and yet what you're doing now, and he's like, man, I got a boring testimony. I said, what do you mean you have a boring testimony? He said, well, I grew up in church, and my parents weren't like yours. My my mom and dad loved the faith. They loved Jesus. They, they loved their neighbor. I mean, I saw us. We were always doing outreach. We were always giving. Um, I, I, I came to faith in Sunday school when I was seven years old. I don't ever remember a time when I didn't know Jesus. And it's, it's, it's boring. <laughs> and that may be some of your story. And I'll never forget because I, I sat there and I told him, what is boring? about being saved from an eternal hell of isolation. What is boring about that? And I said, oh, by the way, I said, it's almost more of a miracle that you could see the depravity in your need for Jesus than somebody like me. See, it's easy for me to know I'm a sinner. Ain't hard to convince me. I tell people, Birmingham is one of the hardest places to do ministry. And they're like, why? It's such a Christian culture. I'm like, bingo. How are you going to give people a solution when they don't think they have a problem? Been at church my whole life. Know the Lord. Know the catechisms. And yet their life looks nothing like Jesus. It's more of a miracle for you if you know Jesus and you grew up in the church than it is for somebody like me, sewer garbage, to be saved and redeemed. And so I want to share with you in the next 10 minutes three things that I wish at your age I would have known. If I could go back, if I could tell my 21-year-old self, my 18-year-old self, three things about Christianity, about walking with the Lord, what would they be? And the first one is this, mind the gap. What do I mean? Well, guess what? When you give your life to the Lord, you are transformed. You are a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. All things have become new in your life. You are loved. You are accepted. You are affirmed in Jesus. When God looks upon me, he doesn't see Jason and all his uh, arrests. He doesn't see Jason in having two kids outside of marriage. He doesn't see Jason in the sin of pride. He doesn't see any of that. What he sees is his son's perfect life, and I am accepted and affirmed. 
But guess what? The whole purpose of that salvation is not for me to be able to pull it out as fire insurance and say, well, you know, I got my ticket to heaven. That's what a lot of us do. It's like, I know Jesus. I got my ticket to heaven. But how I live day to day is not, that, that really doesn't factor into it, you know. Because I know where I'm going in the end. No, the purpose of salvation is that this once body that was created in the image of God and had a distorted view of God, that this, this, this human being now is transformed and now has the potential and the ability to reflect God's glory no matter where he goes. A lot of people are waiting on eternal life. When you become a new creation in Christ Jesus, guess what? Eternal life begins because Jesus comes to indwell you through the Holy Spirit. It's an unbelievable thing. We don't think about that enough. How do you have the power to live out your day-to-day life? Simple, because the same Jesus that lived this perfect life, that died on the cross, that took our sins and our iniquities and our punishment and rose from the grave and conquered sin, death, Satan, that Jesus lives inside of us by way of the power of the Holy Spirit. But here's what happens. People say, well, if Jesus did all that for you and you're accepted and you're saved and you're redeemed, so you can't improve upon your salvation, right? You can't make him love you anymore. And so that means that puts me over here in this rut of, but I'm confused because there's also things like be holy as I am holy. There's also things like deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. There's also things like Matthew 25 where he says, if you haven't visited those who are sick, those who are naked, those who are in prison, then depart from me, I never knew you. And I've seen, unfortunately, two camps divide where there's this, there's this, you know, legalism of I've got to love my neighbor, I've got to get out, I've got to do all these things for Jesus. I, I've, I, I've got to be involved in this and this and this. And they create and cast these burdens upon themselves that, 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 that they, they forget that they are accepted and affirmed. And then the other side of that is just this sloppy kind of grace, like I'm saved, I'm good, I'm going to heaven. So it doesn't really matter how I live my life. And I'm here to tell you when the power of the Holy Spirit is inside of you, when you have repented of your sins, when you have come to Jesus, he makes you new and he empowers you to walk out obedience, not perfectly, but purposefully. Not to be accepted, but because you are accepted. It's beautiful. If I could tell you another thing, I would tell you to love Jesus more. Because one of the things I've learned is you learn a lot from being married, by the way. Um, I often equate my relationship with, with, with Jesus to what I've learned through walking with my wife. When I got married, um, man, I knew nothing about being a husband. And um, she would want to do things like go to Hobby Lobby and, um, and Pier 1 Imports. And she would want to look at curtains and rugs, and throws, and pillows, and she'd be asking me, and I'm like, I don't care. I mean, y'all, I'm a 25-year-old dude. I'm like, I just want the 65-inch plasma on the wall with DirecTV, NFL Sunday ticket, and I could be sitting in a milk carton. As long as I got some wings, 
I don't care what color the milk carton is. And yet, you know, here she is like, well, this is, you know, more of a traditional, um, you know, modern contemporary. I didn't care. I didn't care. I don't care what color the couch is. I don't care what material the couch is. Just buy a couch. <laughs> Guess where I was over the weekend? Hobby Lobby. <laughs> Pier 1 Imports. Haverty. And I'm actually responsible for a my wife will tell you about 75% of the decor in our house. Actually read magazines like Traditional Home. Actually talk with a good friend of mine who's an architect about color and texture, about what fits together. If I've got this leather sectional, can I, you know, what kind of cloth, um, you know, chairs can I put over here? What changed? What changed from a guy who could care less about furniture and decor to all of a sudden not only involved in it, but really trying to learn and grow in it? I'm going to tell you what changed. I love my wife. I love my wife. That is our relationship with Christ. See, when you love someone, really love someone, when they have gripped and captivated your heart, your values change. The things that used to be not important to you now are important to you because of that individual. The things that you used to throw off on the side is, man, it's no big deal. Now all of a sudden they become a big deal. And that is our walk with Jesus. See, I didn't care about injustice when I'm over here. I didn't care about I didn't care about my neighbor when I'm over here. I'm taking advantage of my neighbor for my own benefit. I'm taking advantage of girls for things that I want. And now all of a sudden, but I love Jesus. I want to love the things that Jesus loves. Jesus says to love our neighbor as ourselves. I, I want to do that. That's the kind of person I want to be. Listen, I love the scripture in 1 John 5. He says, we love God when we keep his commandments. And oh, by the way, and this is my translation, his commandments, his rules, his establishments are not burdensome. See, too many people walking around, yeah, but if I, if I follow Jesus, I got to give up this. I mean, if I follow Jesus, is he going to ask me to give up that? That means you don't get it yet. Because when you have a bigger yes, you can say no to temptation. I met with a young man yesterday struggling in pornography and struggling with temptation. And I mean, you can, get, you can give people a whole lot of things that they can do, but the reality of it is when you begin to love Jesus more, when you value your relationship with him more than these other things, that is when you begin to grow. So mind the gap. There's a gap. There's a gap. All of us have a gap from where we know we should be to where we actually are today. There's a gap. The second thing is love Jesus more. And the third thing I'll leave you with, and I'll be done in three minutes, is with comes before for. What do I mean by that? 
Well, having been in ministry for a number of years now, I see a lot of our efforts, whether it be poverty alleviation, whether it be, um, you know, working with, working with people who are in under-resourced communities, um, whether it be walking with somebody who's, who's coming out of um, depressions or, or various besetting sins, there always seems to be this, this four mentality. And what I mean by that is um, Christians excel at trying to fix people. Right? So if you see somebody in poverty, what? You want to do something for them. If you see somebody who's hungry, you want to give them food. If you see, see somebody who's thirsty, you want to, you know, give them water. And, and, and I've watched as ministry has become very paternalistic. Not only here in Birmingham, but globally. Missionaries, short-term missionaries go overseas and, 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 they, and they interact with poor people and they feel so bad for them. And they try to do things for them. Let me just tell you, that destroys people's dignity. There was a, there's a scripture about Mary and Martha, and it used to irritate me all the time because I'm a performance junkie, right? I know my flesh. I'm a doer. And, and Mary's sitting at the foot of Jesus, and Martha's getting all the stuff ready, and she's working hard. I mean, she's me. She's performance-oriented. She's like, man, Jesus is going to have the best meal. It's gonna be, the house is going to be clean. It's going to be spotless. You know, my stuff from Hobby Lobby is going to match. <laughs> and... Um, and Mary's just sitting there, and, 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 and Martha's like, tell her to do something, basically. Like, like don't you see? And Jesus said this, and, and it, it just rocked me. It's like, she's chosen the best portion. And I'm scratching my head, like, what do you mean, chosen the best portion? She's just sitting there at your feet. Oh. See, Mary desired to be with Jesus, not to just do for Jesus. So many frustrations I've seen from pastors and people in ministry is because their whole aim, their whole desire, their whole goal is to do for people. And then when people don't respond to you the way that you want them to respond, you're frustrated and you're ready to give up. Ah, but there's a better way. And it's being with Jesus and being with people. Because what I've learned in being in poverty myself and working with people who are poor is that they would far rather have a friend to talk to, somebody to do life with, somebody to cry with, somebody where they, their voice can be heard. They would much rather that than you do something for them. Now, are there times we do stuff for people? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying that. But the most important thing is being with. And I would challenge you with this, leave you with this. When you look at the cross and you think about Jesus dying on the sins, it was the ultimate four moment of history, right? Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And yet if you read your Bible carefully, you see that that four has a huge foundation and that foundation is with. First descriptive name of Jesus on the scene, Matthew 1, chapter 1. Emmanuel. Anybody know what that means? God with us. Jesus um, is about to ascend into heaven. He's died, he's risen from the grave, and he gives out the great commission. And then he, he gives this little tagline at the end. Does anybody know what it is? Lo, I will what? Be with you until the end of the ages. And then if you read the end of the story in Revelation chapter 21, through John, God says, behold, my dwelling place is with man. I will be with them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. 
What is Christianity all about? It is about a relationship with God. And when you saturate yourself with God through prayer, through Bible study, through action, stepping out on faith, through interacting in relationships and engaging with people that are different than you, when you begin to do that, you begin to live a full, robust life where the love of God will flow through you because it's flowing to you. Too many people are frustrated. Too many people are hypocrites. Too many people aren't minding the gap because ultimately their aim is not to be with God. It's to do for God. I propose to you a new way. and You will see so much fruit in your life. Makes your head spin. Many days I, I, I wonder to myself, God, how can you use me? You know who I am. I'll leave you with this interesting fact because God has a plan and a story for every one of you of how he's going to use you in life. My very social security number starts with 205. I was born in D.C. Lived there until I was 20 years old. And my social security number starts with 205. And guess where I live now? The 205. And growing up, you could have never told me, like, Jason, what's your plan for life? Oh, I'm going to move to Birmingham and I'm going to do ministry. <laughs> even in our mistakes, even in our sinful, our, our, our sinful condition, even, even, even the bad decisions we make cannot thwart or stop the plan of God. He's going to work it out in your life. The question is when. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die for us sinners. You have redeemed us. You have given us a purpose for living, and that is to glorify you, to reflect you in all that we do. So that when people come in contact with us, they will see you ultimately. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit, which indwells us, which gives us the power to grow, the power to love power to even believe some days when it's hard for us to believe. God, I pray for this group of young people. I pray that you would surround them with your love and that you would give them hope. We live in some very challenging and difficult times right now, and we need you more than ever, and we need you to separate a people who are distinct. It says in your word that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken, and yet we see this dividing wall come up in social media and news every day, and, and we're perplexed. We just need more of you. Thank you for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Y'all may be dismissed. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.